3: It's Wednesday, March 31st. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, it's the News Items Podcast. I'm John Ellis.
4: And I'm Rebecca Darst. Every Monday through Thursday afternoon, we bring you news items from three major storylines disrupting modern life a world in disarray, the financialization of everything, and advances in science and technology.
3: And sometimes, of course, we talk politics. Today, we'll start with these three news items.
4: First, the head of the World Health Organization has called for further investigation into the possibility the coronavirus escaped from a laboratory in China.
3: Then, China may be setting up a whole new stock exchange, in part to attract foreign companies like Apple.
4: And third, with Europe's vaccine rollout in shambles, the leaders of France and Germany spoke with Vladimir Putin to discuss importing Russia's Sputnik V vaccine.
3: Then, after the break, we have an interview with my friend Jill Abramson, the former executive editor of The New York Times. We'll talk about The Times' business model and the future of the paper.
4: Finally, we'll close with important headlines from the world of science and tech.
3: Let's get to the news items.
4: First, in our World in Disarray storyline, the head of the World Health Organization has called for more investigation into the possibility that the coronavirus leaked from a laboratory in China. Quote, all hypotheses remain on the table, end quote, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said at a news conference yesterday. The Financial Times reports that he called for access to biological samples from September 2019, months before the virus made daily headlines, and said he was prepared to deploy specialists. This is kind of a head spinner. Just yesterday, a report by the WHO itself called a lab leak quote, extremely unlikely. The report even says that this theory doesn't warrant further investigation, according to the Washington Post. John, help me understand this. How does that happen? You seem to have diverging points of view in the official report and then the officials uh, statements on record.
3: Obviously, we don't know for sure. But the fact that the Biden administration and Secretary Blinken specifically Mm -hmm. took a gigantic bucket of cold water and threw it all over the WHO report probably would be my guess as to why the WHO chief said maybe we walk this back a little bit.
4: So can you sort of give a elementary overview of the case for the lab leak hypothesis, other than the fact that China stonewalled for a year, which undoubtedly added fuel to the fire.
3: There are a number of scientists who think that the genome is altered in a way that suggests, if not indicates, that it was manipulated, that Mm -hmm. it did not come from an animal or a bat or whatever. Or at least not Um, directly.
4: Maybe it originated at a bat, but took a pit stop in a lab.
3: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. But Matt Pottinger, who was the deputy national security advisor at the White House in the Trump administration, was the person who really pressed all of the agencies to do everything they could to find out what had happened. And Matt... Came away from that whole investigation believing that it wasn't certain that it was a lab leak, but lab leak was definitely on the table.
4: The investigation is ongoing. Is that is that accurate to say? I mean, this is not the crash report on on COVID nineteen, but rather part of an ongoing and evolving investigation. I
3: right? think so. I mean, I I don't think, given what you know, the head of the WHO said that you can just say okay that's it. Right. What's interesting about it I mean uh, there are a lot of things that are interesting about it but one thing that's interesting about it is that the Chinese have essentially blocked access to data. They have kept they kept the Americans out when all of the you know, sort of the leading virologists in the United States were reaching out to colleagues in China and we're getting nothing back. The Xi regime just shut it down. And WHO was not even able to get to Wuhan until a year later. Right. Meanwhile, the intelligence agencies, the United States intelligence agencies, but not just the U.S. agencies, were saying evidence points to some kind of accident in a lab. No one was suggesting, as far as I know, that this was a creation of a biological weapon but that it was an accident similar to one that the CDC had years ago in Atlanta, and that the Chinese had covered it up. And so here we are, and there's been a concerted effort in the scientific community to make anyone who propounds the idea that it was a lab leak or a lab accident A large number of scientists in the community worldwide have said that if you believe that, you're a conspiracy theorist, you're a nut, you're a pro-Trump lunatic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But now, no less than the head of WHO is saying all options are on the table, essentially,
4: It seems like the spread, the aftermath, the investigation has been politicized at every turn, much to the detriment of global public health. Right. Okay, John, we've got another China story today, and this one comes from our financialization of everything basket. Reuters reports China is considering establishing a new stock exchange. Beijing hopes the move will attract overseas-listed firms like Apple and Tesla, while also boosting the global status of its onshore share markets. This would be a big move for China, which already has two main onshore exchanges in Shanghai and Shenzhen, with combined capital market capitalization topping $12 trillion.
3: So it's a bit of a crowded space already, right?
4: Tis, yes.
3: How would this work?
4: Well, look, this is still in the exploratory phase. I mean, my own personal reading between the lines suggests that this is a subtle retaliation to U.S. threats to delist several Chinese companies whose shares are listed in the U.S. for failing to comply with accounting disclosure requirements listed by U.S. exchanges under Sarbanes-Oxley. The primary objective of opening a third exchange would be to lure back Chinese companies that have listed shares back into China so that they're not seeking capital elsewhere. China does have two main exchanges in Shanghai and Shenzhen. Shanghai is mostly state-owned enterprises. Shenzhen is mostly dominated by smaller retail investors. There's also the Shanghai Starboard. There's Hong Kong's exchange. So it is a crowded space. I think, as I was saying, the primary objective is going to be to lure back Chinese companies that have listed shares abroad. But there is a secondary objective, and that is ostensibly to attract some foreign domiciled companies that might want to list their shares in China. Reuters and Bloomberg reports on this very story mentioned companies like Apple, like Tesla. But I have to tell you, John, you know, the first company that popped into my mind when I heard China wants to attract foreign listings to its big board? Mm-hmm. Saudi Aramco.
3: Right. Of course.
4: That's what I thought, because they were thinking about Tokyo. Tokyo. I get that, right?
3: That makes sense. That's a good story for Investable Universe.
4: We got to follow that one because I thought, I mean, what would the price be to list on the big board in Shanghai? (laughs) Is it a price that most U.S. tech companies are willing to pay?
3: Is it a thing where the U.S. government is doing X and Mm -hmm. U.S. businesses want to do Y because they want to do business with China? Yeah. And so China is putting out yet another sticky board to attach U.S. business interests to Chinese interests and thus further conflicting the ability of the government to do things.
4: I don't know that the impetus for this is coming from U.S. firms that are interested in listing directly in China. So I think what's happening is that the U.S. has made these recurrent and persistent threats about listing requirements for Chinese firms, questioning some of the regulatory integrity of some of these companies. Uh, and Beijing integrity. is responding in kind of like, well, you don't really need New York anyway." Beijing's line about the U.S. is that it's trying to prevent the inevitable rise of China and that this is just another obstacle they're throwing in the path of Chinese companies that, that want to list their shares.
3: That's true. And it's a huge pool of capital, right? Yes. If you go out to the rest of the world, not the U.S. companies, but if you went out to all the companies everywhere else and said, this is a vast pool of capital that's ready to invest, that's pretty attractive, right?
4: Absolutely. So let's move on to our next item. Europe has been slow to deliver vaccines to its citizens. Only 11% of Germans have received at least one shot, for instance. The Telegraph reports that the shambolic rollout has led Germany and France's heads of state to call Vladimir Putin and discuss, among other things, using Russia's Sputnik V vaccine. How does this bit of vaccine diplomacy strike you, John?
3: Oh, a lot of different levels, of this one. Yes. One of the interesting things is that the Russians are sort of marketing the Sputnik vaccine while they're importing <laughs> other vaccines for themselves, for the elites in Russia.
4: They don't want to eat their own cooking. Is that it?
3: Yeah. So there's that. But because of the Germans and the French, I mean, the EU generally, but the French yeah. and, the, and the Germans specifically, so bungling the rollout of the vaccine and the AZ, the slandering of the AZ vaccine and on and on.
4: Mm -hmm. AstraZeneca, yeah.
3: They are now desperate to get their people vaccinated, and the Russians are there saying, we have plenty if you give us many dollars, and they're in such a bad spot that they're negotiating to get Sputnik vaccine. It's an astonishing turn of events.
4: So just to clarify, the European Medicines Agency, the EMA, has not formally approved Sputnik V yet. Is that right?
3: I think so, and I think a lot of people have a lot of questions about its efficacy, that's for sure.
4: Right. So Austria's chancellor stated last week, I believe, that Austria would be willing to order Sputnik 5 as early as next week, even if it has not yet been approved by that time. And Angela Merkel, I believe, has said that Germany would consider using Sputnik 5, even if other EU countries are not willing. Now, Germany is not strictly cap in hand here going to the Russians. I mean, as I understand it, there's some capacity build out from uh, Pfizer-BioNTech that's expected in the coming months. and Johnson & Johnson, which I believe has been approved for use in Europe, is also supposed to roll out pretty soon.
3: You know, the thing that's so astonishing about it is that the couple that invented (laughs) the vaccine that Pfizer is now marketing... Uh, are in and, Germany, right? Are, live in oh, Berlin.
4: So, oh, yeah. And, yeah. you
3: know, these the two people who literally saved the world at some level yeah. live in Berlin. So they could have just walked down the street and said, how do we do this?
4: Doesn't that just say it all? That's a commentary on the whole situation, right? Because then there's also in the past week, we've seen political tensions rising in the EU over potential export restrictions over the vaccine, right? Right, right. The EU may block exports to countries that have higher vaccines. Vaccination rates than the EU itself, right. and there's a whole question about what that means for you know individual state sovereignty and the intellectual property of drug makers. Talk about world in disarray, John. Yes, like, yeah. You, you talk about it in news items every day.
3: It's the perfect EU metaphor, right? Right. Except in this case, if they don't get ahead of it, then yeah. at least on paper, it, it may not turn out this way. But it, all of the experts think that if the mm-hmm. variants beat the vaccines. We're back to March 2020.
4: And as I should have mentioned earlier, Russia's Sputnik V vaccine was funded through the country's sovereign wealth fund, the RDIF. How would you characterize the diplomatic victory for Vladimir Putin if Sputnik V is adopted within the European Union?
3: Big, right? Yeah. One of the things that we as a podcast are going to be looking at over and over again is the impact of covid on politics around the world, right? The German mm-hmm. elections are this fall. The French election is coming up next year. And into this is sort of a hang grenade called COVID-19. And it's just causing people to do things, I think, that they would ever otherwise never do.
4: Yeah. Incredible. Mm-hmm. A novel ending, that's for sure. Indeed. For the novel coronavirus. Indeed. All right. Well, that wraps it up for our news items today. John, what's next?
3: Well, as you may know, Subscriber growth at the New York Times soared during the Trump years, but that has slowed down a bit. Uh Uh-oh. I had a great conversation with Jill Abramson, the former executive editor of the paper, about the Times business model in the post-Trump era. Jill had a legendary 17-year career at the Times. She was the first woman to serve as Washington bureau chief. She was the first woman to serve as managing editor and, of course, the first woman to serve as executive editor. She's the author of a terrific book on the transformation of media in the digital age, which is called The Merchants of Truth. She's a great person to talk to about the news landscape today. And just as an alert, listeners should note, getting good audio can be tricky during the pandemic, and this interview is no different. But despite the less than perfect audio quality, our conversation, I think, was quite good.
4: Okay, let's hear from our sponsors, and then after the break, we'll hear what Jill has to say.
0: Normalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
3: We have today as our guest Jill Abramson, the former Washington Bureau Chief, Managing Editor, and Executive Editor of The New York Times, and the author of Merchants of Truth, which, after The Powers That Be, is probably the best book about modern media that you'll read. Thank you for joining us, Jill.
1: Happy to be here, John.
3: So in 2016, Trump's elected, comes into office, and that begins a surge of subscriptions at, among others, the New York Times. I'm not quite sure how to ask this, but I mean, there's the obvious question, which is, did becoming part of some kind of resistance to Trump become, not editorial policy, but editorial bias.
1: Well, it became more than editorial bias. It became a business model. Right. Because, you know, during Trump's presidency, the Times became almost an entirely reader-revenue-driven business, advertising both digital and print has decreased uh, dramatically. And, you know, the Times readership is liberal and affluent and highly educated. And every headline that had Trump in it was like mana from heaven to the Times readership. Those stories got by far the biggest readership. And the Trump bump, you know, was driven by obsession with Trump and a kind of what I, I think of as Trump poisoning that everybody had that made it impossible to look away from all of the crazy and very hurtful things he, he was doing. And it resulted in millions of new. Digital subscribers to the Times, they never had more subscribers than they did in the last quarter of twenty twenty and look why I say it's a business model it's similar to facebook's algorithm, which gives people more of what they say they like, and so that's what the times's news report was doing. It was giving readers more of what they liked and were reading. And that was Trump, 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 Trump.
3: So what happens now without Trump?
1: I think the time is gonna hold on to most of its expanded readership, but obviously not all of it. Hmm.
3: I think so too, actually. The great thing for the Times was that Trump attracted basically every anti-Trump person in the country, of which you know there were apparently at least eighty-four million.
1: Right, railing against the failing New York Times resulted in you know a fatter and happy New York Times.
3: <laughs> so, in in the business of the New York Times, when you were executive editor, that was a, an issue. Obviously, you had to deal with more or less, every day.
1: It was all I dealt with. (laughs) It was all I dealt with as executive editor.
3: You know, they need alternate revenue streams. They've just hired a game maker. That seems to me a very good idea. Yeah. When you were executive editor there and when, you know, obviously you still know a lot of people there, are there ideas as to where other revenue can be generated?
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought, Cooking was definitely a revenue generator. And for years, I was kind of pushed to the side and told that the New York Times recipes were not digitized. You know, all of those. I'm not (laughs) kidding you. And every, every year, I would put that on the top of my priority list, and it never got to the top until finally as my last year there we were developing the cooking app which has made you know millions of dollars for the times right there were areas that you know could be grown out of news coverage that we did and wanted to do anyway that i was all for i was not for adjacent products that were not really beneficial to the mission of news gathering. I hated high-dollar-sponsored and paid conferences. I hated the idea of time's trips, and I'm not going to say I told you so, <laughs> uh, given the recent controversy over a certain trip to Peru. <laughs>
3: That's okay. You can hear
1: You know, Keller and I, when he was executive editor, I was managing editor, put the kibosh on a Times Wine Club because it wasn't going to bear any connection to Times Wine criticism and, in fact, would in some ways ethically pollute things. So, I mean, I've been brought up in journalism believing in a very high and non-porous wall between business and the news. And, you know, my belief system became very outmoded in the digital era. I will admit that, but it's what I basically still believe in.
3: When did you first start reading the New York Times?
1: I first started reading the New York Times in fourth grade, Because we had a current events class in my school where you had to bring in an article that you thought was interesting. And my mother wouldn't let me cut up National Geographic, which I actually thought was the most interesting. So she didn't mind if I cut up the times, especially because my parents actually had two Seven day a week home delivery subscriptions to the Times.
3: One for each.
1: We live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And, you know, my parents never voted for Republican during their lifetimes. And they were involved in progressive Democratic West Side politics and. You know, my early life was a satire of New York Times, highly educated, pretty affluent upbringing.
3: We're right at noon, so we'll let you go. But I hope you'll come back. And thank you very much for doing this.
1: I really appreciate it. Sure. It was lots of fun.
4: And now for our science and tech headlines. First, Cakeson reports that one of the world's biggest smartphone companies is investing $10 billion in a new electric car business. Xiaomi joins a crowded field in China, the biggest market for electric cars in the world. Nearly 1.4 million electric vehicles were sold in the country in 2020, and one research firm thinks that figure will grow by 50% this year. My take on this is that what it has to do with is smart infrastructure. So you have a smartphone and a car built together that to communicate with a road. Everything is integrated, whether it's consumer tech, internet, whether it's smart payments and finance, et cetera. It all is developing in the service of the ultimate smart city vision.
3: Right, and it also obviously sets up the infrastructure for The surveillance state.
4: That's right. But moving on. According to a study in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, scientists have found the coldest temperature ever measured on planet Earth. It wasn't on the surface, but at the very top of a storm cloud poking into the stratosphere over the Pacific Ocean. There, the temperature in December 2018 reached a frigid minus 167.8 degrees Fahrenheit, so cold that it pushed the limits of the infrared sensor on an NOAA satellite used to pick it up. Extremely cold thunderclouds have grown more common and those can be more destructive, the study's lead author told Live Science. He didn't rule out climate change as a factor.
3: Live Science is a reliable source for uh, news items and, you know, 100 and... uh, 68 degrees below zero catches your attention. Well, thank you. That was a good uh, good day, and I'll yes. see you tomorrow, right?
4: I'll see you tomorrow.
3: And listeners should know that aside from co-hosting news items of the podcast, uh, Rebecca has a terrific website called Investable Universe. And that, of course, is at investableuniverse.com.
4: Thank you, John. And our listeners should also know that while we're here featuring stories from news items on the podcast, they will get deeper intel by going to the News Items newsletter and subscribing. Google News Items Substack and you will find the real skinny on what is moving the world today. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news from our three major storylines, the financialization of everything, a world in disarray, and advances in science and technology. See you then.